I'm Jason Hopkins, founder and president of The Connection Project. Welcome to Everyday Brave, a podcast series for emergency responders by emergency responders. We explore real-world issues that each of us face. Our goal is to inspire, educate, and instill hope that we are all in this together. Thank you for joining us on this journey to become more connected to ourselves and others. Let's get started. Today on this episode of the Everyday Brave podcast, I'm joined by Officer Emily Hitchings and Sergeant Mike Petrusu for the Aurora Police Department. Officer Hitchings is in her 15th year at the Aurora Police Department and her third year as the Employee Support and Wellness Unit Officer. Prior to her current assignment, she was an investigator in both the narcotics and fugitive units, where she spent more than eight years in an undercover capacity. Sergeant Petrusu is in his 20th year with the Aurora Police Department and his third year as the Executive Officer to the Chief of Police. Prior to his current assignment, he spent time as the Employee Support and Wellness Sergeant and 14 years on the full-time SWAT team as an officer, team leader, and sergeant. Thanks to you both for being here today. Um, I appreciate you you making the time to share more about the valuable work you're doing. Um, Yeah, I feel like a slacker uh, sitting here with you guys looking at all of the, (laughs) the work you've done. So tell me how this work started. You're doing wellness work. Um, obviously, you didn't start there. Where where did this sort of first morph for you guys? Yeah, so I, I think it started uh, more with me. Obviously, I uh, I was looking for a different role about uh, four years ago or okay. so. Um, my daughter had come forward and asked if I could spend some more time at home uh, after being on call for so many years uh, doing the SWAT uh, gig. So uh, I, I said, yeah, I think I can change some things up. So I I actually uh, left the SWAT team and, and went into a different role within the department uh, and spent a very short time there before um, our current chief of police, Chief Metz, asked me to take on the role of the, the employee support and wellness sergeant for the department. And so that's kind of how it all started about four years ago. There was some reluctancy uh, by me to take on that role. It was something that um, obviously I'd never done before, and it was it was definitely not an operational role. It was more of an administrative role, which I had never <laughs> been part of. So it was an out of the box sort of ask. Uh, it definitely, definitely, and um, you know we had, we went back and forth for a couple of months um, before I agreed to do it. Um, you know, he kept telling me that he thought I, I thought he thought I'd be good at it and things like that, and I didn't trust his judgment <laughs> at that <laughs> moment. But uh, but yeah, so and it ended up taking on that role, and um, I spent about a year doing that by myself, kind of looking at things and starting to get. Uh, figure out what kind of direction we want to go as a department when it sure. came to this new unit that he gave us the opportunity to, to start and build and, and support. Um, and during that time period, I already had started having conversations with Emily about, Hey, if this ever, th- if this takes off and this morphs into something larger and I get an opportunity to, to actually bring somebody else on board, um, you would be my first pick, uh, knowing how, what she'd done in her, in her uh, career and, and what a hard worker she was. And she'd been doing a lot of this peer support type work on a daily basis with members of our department. So um, kind of how it started from the grassroots level at that point. And, and I was very fortunate to made a kind of a deal with the chief when uh, the executive officer position opened up to take on that role and okay. still be part of wellness and hire Emily to come in and, and be the full-time wellness person at that so time. So before we jump to you, Emily, what is an executive officer to the um, police chief? So basically just the executive officer of the police chief handles um, a lot of the things on, on a daily basis that the chief either uh, needs more work done on, needs information on. Um, I, I do a lot of community outreach with some of our um, community groups and things like that. Okay. Um, overall, it's a bit like all duties as assigned. So on a daily basis, it's kind of like, hey, we need this done. It's yours. So go, like a chief of staff. Kind of like that. Okay. 
So Emily, what about for you? How did how did this seed get planted? <laughs> I mean, other than Mike engaged you. Yeah, um, Mike used the word reluctant for him. Mine uh-huh. mine was reluctance to an extreme. I I've left the um, the fugitive apprehension and surveillance team. Okay. Uh, the fast team is what it's called, and it was and still is the best job on the department. I think, but I'm biased. Um, it was so much fun. And such a unique experience, chasing bad guys, very little paperwork, <laughs> um, but you're just you're just chasing all the time and doing surveillance, and it's really fun, and it's really addictive. And you're not an adrenaline junkie, right? Uh, oh, no. No. <laughs> no cops are adrenaline junkies. Right. But um, when Sergeant Petrusu came to me, uh, I was like, no, thank you. I appreciate it, but no, thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm doing good where I'm at. And we he met with me and talked to me several times and finally um, met me for coffee. And he's like, listen, this is probably one of the most rewarding jobs you'll have in the department. Um, I see big things coming from this. I need help. You are my choice. And I, you no know, pressure there, no right? pressure. <laughs> and I'm like, come on. You know, I, I'm so happy where I am. And, you know, it turned into one of those these I also look up to him as sort of a right. mentor, and, and he was like, Emily, you need to do this. It's going to be good for your career, too, and um, you'll find a lot of fulfillment out of it. And he was right. Um, I'm glad I trusted him and eventually signed on um, because it has been such a rewarding job, such an incredible experience, and the the things that we are seeing, uh, the fruit that we are seeing from what we are doing is just somebody needs to do it. Right. You know? and, yeah, there's no question about that. And uh, we needed it, and uh, I think we're we're doing really good things. Well, I love that. But before we jump into that, let's talk about how this got started. I mean, obviously you talked about how you guys came to the work. What were you all seeing that really perpetuated needing a wellness department? Well, I, I think we had a good idea um, just from being cops for so long, understanding that there were underlying issues that people weren't dealing with, uh, the stigma of mental health. We knew that alcoholism um, is is something that a lot of guys suffer from. Uh, we knew basic things, but it wasn't until probably my first year, um, I really wanted to know what our guys needed. It does me no good to put together classes about nutrition or or finance or fitness if that's not what they need. Right. So I I uh, created this um, online polling system and taught at an in-service class. Okay. And it was one of those live cell phone pollings so everybody could see each other's answers. And I tried to keep it pretty lighthearted, but there was some pretty meaty stuff in there that I was inquiring about. Okay. Um, everything from retirement uh, to finances to, you know, are you prepared for the worst? Like, do you have will? Do you have... Um, a living will. Uh, and then I moved on to like some post-traumatic stress questions and um, suicide, uh, some things that were pretty heavy. And the results that I got back from that were not only useful in how we were going to move going forward and identifying the specific needs of our agency, right. but also kind of reassuring because it showed that a APD was as much as I would like us to be ahead of the, the national norms. Um, we're not any different than anybody we else. We are not. We have the exact same, I mean, almost down to the exact percentage. Wow. Um, so of, of for suicidal tendencies, for um, financial issues, for post-traumatic stress. So that was kind of encouraging, too, that we weren't 
any more jacked up than any other agency, <laughs> but um, it did give us a place to start and a place to sure. go forward. And, and I think some of the other foundational things we looked at too were when we came on board, uh, we had had a peer support team for, for decades and it, okay. and it was a good team and it had a lot of good people on it and it was good size. And we have a very robust psych services contract that we've had for 20 plus years um, when it comes to access, not only for, for our officers, but their families. And so we looked at those two things, knowing that those were the foundational things we needed to build off of. And so we, we made sure that, uh, you know, the, the peer support team was operating the way we wanted to, that everybody was getting properly trained, that there was good oversight, um, that selection process was key to that and who we were bringing on. Um, and then we looked at our psych services contract and we, we looked at what we could do to make it better, even though it was really good. And, and we were able to make some improvements on that. And it's probably cost us, it's definitely cost us some more money to do that, but that's probably the biggest financial investment that we've made. Um, on this is the, the contract itself. So we looked at those two things as being really key um, in building anything else off of this. And so we, we made sure that those were those were good to go. And then, like, like Emily was talking about, that polling was key to what do we need to do next? Um, right. And that was that was one of the key components of that. One of the other key components we can talk about in a little bit was was engaging the families and figuring out what they needed. Not okay. the officers working here, but what did the families feel like they needed? And so that was another thing that we started working on. And I love that you guys, you know, adapted to this place of learning what people actually need. You know, I always call it in the work that I do, meeting people where they are. Um, and I see a lot of this work that we do is reactionary to something happened, and we create something based on that. When the reality is, um, and Ben O'Brien and I were just talking about this from South Metro, you know, there's a real obligation to be more responsive in doing this work. Um, I'll be frank, when we started the Connection Project, it really is a social experiment. The thing that I knew is I had a platform um, and I had the ability to deliver information technologically in a way that other people may not readily have available. But from that place, I can tell you what resources people are searching for, what they need more of, what podcasts they're listening to more of, and really being able to discern from that like you did with your poll – these are the things that maybe we should want to look at directionally to grow something forward. I think there's a real responsibility for those of us that do this work to really be informed around what are we creating. Just because we think it may be helpful may not actually be necessary or helpful. So I admire you taking that on from that perspective. Um, as this has really evolved and morphed, um, it sounds like you're adding more things you know, as you go along what's changed or what's been different than what you expected maybe from the beginning? Um, you know, there's, I think, I think the thing that has surprised me the most is that no two situations are the same. Okay. That, uh, you know, this one guy that might be struggling with the exact same issue as somebody else has a different dynamic or a different component. Maybe it's a different home life. Maybe it's a lack of support system. Maybe it's, um, uh, you know, maybe it's disciplinary. Maybe it was a result of discipline and, and maybe somebody just self-reported. Every single situation that we deal with, it seems like, is different. Right. And so we just about feel like we have a good handle on something and then somebody throws us a curveball. And so I think the hardest part of, of this job in general is um, trying to meet all of those needs, uh, being flexible but also, you know, whenever we're starting to put some of these things into policy and the ways that we're going to care for people, making sure that those are written in a way that we don't put people in a box. So you that, can be adaptive. Absolutely. So that so that somebody that, that is going through a crisis um, but doesn't need the same level of care as somebody else right. isn't forced unnecessarily 
through different processes that maybe they don't need and it's going to create a, a bigger problem. We we want people to leave feeling like they were cared for, that they got the resources that they needed, but it wasn't unnecessarily burdensome. Right. We want to make it as easy as possible to come forward. Um, so so I would say that that's been the biggest struggle. Um, I think that the, the thing I've been most surprised at was a, a direct result of that poll was that our number one issue for guys didn't have anything to do with the job necessarily. It was finances. Right. Um, and I knew that that was a systemic problem also amongst, um, you know, police, probably all first responders, but I can only speak to police. It's a problem nationwide. But for whatever reason, we also have a highly concentrated issue around finances in the department. And I knew that it was there. I had no idea that it was going to be um, so prevalent. Yes. And and absolutely voted our number one issue. You know, on that poll, number one, the glaring issue was finances. What do you think that's about? I, I think that it's a result of several things. Um, I think that uh, there's almost this self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, where where we – Already come to the job thinking because we hear all these things growing up. Well, you're not doing it for the money, right? You're not doing it for for uh, the paycheck because notoriously cops have not been paid well. Well, sure. I've got to say that we're in a place now where cops are compensated really well, but we are almost beating ourselves down in this self fulfilling prophecy that we're already going to be struggling for money. I think that that's part of it. That we're just cops, so we um, we don't make much money and we're always going to be behind. Right. That's not necessarily the case. Right. Um, but I think guys use that as an excuse. I think that another issue that we see is that um, it's it's almost like we police a part of society um, that we want to set ourselves different than, right? So we want to um, live in nice areas that we perceive as crime-free, we okay. want our kids to go to nice schools where we feel like we don't have to worry about them. We want to drive better cars than our, the perceived people that we um, are engaged the most with in society. Not that it's any downfall of societies. It's just that we are um, – we feel like we should be in a better place, and that's right. not necessarily the case. Well, we, and often that better place costs more money. I mean that's just – Absolutely. But we need to learn to live within our means. Sure. And and just because we um, want safety, it, that's not necessarily the right perception. Right. Um, we know that that now that the schools um, that we perceive as safe aren't necessarily safe right. from crime. Right. Look right. at the STEM school shooting and even Columbine. Um, those are in nice affluent areas. Um, well, look, all of the school shootings we've had here are in nice affluent mm-hmm. areas. Absolutely. So it, it's it's a misconception, right? That 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 money equals safety. There's well, a there's a couple other things I think that go along with that too. Sure. And, and there's there's some we talked about at the very beginning of this adrenaline, right? Adrenaline junkies and things like that. And there's right. some adrenaline seeking behaviors that happen. And you see you see you know first responders. It doesn't matter if it's police or firefighters or things like that. It, you know buying the toys and it's the motorcycles and the ATVs and the camping trailers and things like that. And they put themselves behind the eight ball. Right. Um, you know doing all these other things coming from a good place of wanting to be. Active, and we love them being active outside. I work hard. I should reward myself exactly, Absolutely. and find themselves in a putting themselves in a predicament where um, 
they can't afford those things. And then they end up working more hours to pay for those things. And when they work those hours, they can't actually use them because sure. now they're at work all the time. I think another part of it is education. Um, I think there's a real lack of education. Um, I can remember back to, you know, being in high school many years ago and going to those classes that taught you about balancing checkbooks and, you know, having a budget and all of those things. At you the had most, those classes? Because yeah. I did not. Yeah. I didn't either. At the most <laughs> basic level. Um, and so, I mean – so obviously it wasn't as rampant uh, going through. You must uh, have lived in a better neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but it, there is definitely a lack of education, and we've seen that with some of the programs that Emily and, and some other folks at our department in our city have been working on. She can talk more to those. But the education piece has been key to this, and, and some people have come in and just been like, I don't know how to do a budget. I don't know how to do a basic budget. I don't know how much I'm supposed to be spending on housing or on bills and things like that. What percentage of How much should I be saving for retirement? And so we had so many people that were focused on the retirement part of things and putting the money away for that. And then they missed, there's a lot of years between here and all there. The, yeah, the daily stuff. And so, yeah. so Emily did a great job with some financial stuff when it comes to classes and she can probably speak more mm-hmm. to that. Well, so let me ask a question as a starting point. Is any of that education given in Academy? Probably not. It is now. It is. is it? Okay. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. Um, I do remember back to my academy 15 years ago, uh, I, I grew up in a very simple home okay. where we did not – we struggled with finances all the time, but we didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I ha- Thankfully, I did not know that I lived in a low-income home. Um, my parents did a good job of masking that, but they weren't very responsible. So I remember sitting in my academy class and somebody, an instructor, talking about how we needed to have – uh, like three months of savings it set aside in case we were, you know, taken off the road because of a because of a shooting or um, maybe a disciplinary issue or something like that, that our job is very unpredictable. And I remember sitting there having an epiphany at like 22 years old. Wow, that would that's actually a really good idea. Right. And it's a shame that I got to that age in my life without being taught some of those basic concepts that apparently Sergeant Petrusu learned in high school. But... Um, <laughs> I didn't it's, either. I'm right there with you. <laughs> but uh, we we have now, um, since seeing the the need in the department, we offer a basic um, finance class in the academy. Now we are, we don't have time to go over every principle. Sure. We hit big key principles, but the biggest thing is they know that we have some knowledge about it, and they also have uh, they they are now armed with the fact that this is important in our job and why. Because the the why is almost as important as the finances. Absolutely. And and so we give them not only some resources, but then even if their mind is not there because they're just focused on getting out of the academy, say they come out and they have a couple years under their belt, they might look back on that and say, you know what, maybe I should go look at those resources. And they know where to find them and how to get plugged into them and that it's a priority for us. Well, and I know when you and I were talking about this originally, we – you know, I was directed to you around money resources that we have on our on our everyday brief page. Um, there are not great resources tailor made to emergency responders. Um, you know, after our conversation, a lot of what you directed me back to was Dave Ramsey's work, and Dave's a guru. Like, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, but it's not necessarily tailor made to your community. Do you think things are different? Um, I, I know there's some some nuanced differences around the need that responders may feel to have a, a certain financial lifestyle. Um, do you think that there's an opportunity for us to create something that is more tailor-made? Honestly, no. <laughs> I 
I think that the reason that there's not specific resources is because there doesn't they need apply to, to be. Anybody. Yeah, absolutely. But I do think that the why. I think that the reasoning behind why to get your finances in order is so much more important for first responders that that there is definitely a need to focus on the why. Okay. Um, guys are so good at preparing for tactical encounters. For um, you know, they're constantly practicing and engaging and training to be successful at work. But then they are not also preparing their finances um, for what could happen as a result of those encounters. Um, They're not uh, caring for their families in the same way or preparing their families for the worst in the way that they need to be to be successful. And because of that, it creates additional stress in their lives. And that stress is also in the family that we see. And this stress causes them, like Sergeant Petrusu said, to work extra duty jobs, to work overtime, um, actually taking them away from their family more, taking them away from those positive activities more. And uh, we have such a high-stress job. Finances should not contribute to that stress. And I think that that just with some very simple key principles, we can really prevent a lot of stress in our lives – um, so I think that the why is more important for us than necessarily the financial principles. I hadn't thought about it that, from that perspective, but I, I think that's spot on. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, obviously, why we do anything, I think, is important, you know, in understanding how you want to change behavior. Obviously, yes. you had mentioned a minute ago um, about how the the, the duties um, of a first responder affect their families and you all are taking some steps to really include them in the work you're doing. Let's talk about that. Yeah, well, I think just to piggyback on the on the financial stuff, one of those things, one of those financial programs that can happen after the academy, these these programs, these Dave Ramsey programs and things like that that we've built out or that Emily's built out with uh, some help from some other folks, um, we offer that to not only the, the, the officer but their families to come in and be part of those classes um, so that there's actually some buy-in on both sides of things and they can sit down together and get through those. But I think – I think that's probably been one of the largest things that we've accomplished in the last year, year and a half or so, was the focus on the greater, um, the the greater uh, engagement get, of the family. engagement of the families outside of our employees. Right, we focus a lot of our resources, or we have been focusing a lot of our resources on the officers, um, on our non-sworn personnel that work in the police department, those types of things. And what we were missing out on was um, the family aspect of that, knowing um, that, that obviously that they need some type of support, knowing that um, that they are in this career just as much as the officer or the other first responders, the firefighters that go in every day and work this job. Right. Um, they have the same similar stressors that those, those folks bring home and things like that. And so we heard early on um, when we started asking the right questions from from some of our our significant others and other family members, you know, what do you need or what? And, and some of the stuff we kind of figured on our own that they probably would say. And then there was other things that we never thought of um, because we don't have that experience as being, uh, you know, the, the, the wife or husband of a, of a, of a police officer. Right. And so we started to design programs um, to support them. And so we started at the grassroots level again with that. And we started with our um, – we have a family night that takes place the first week of the academy where we bring all the family members in, whoever their support system is. I don't care if it's their significant How other, they define it. Yeah, spouse, their parents, Roommate. their grandparents, roommates, brother or mm-hmm. sister that they live, whatever, whoever their person is. That's great. It's going to support them are, inv- are invited to that. 
Um, and so we do that on the first night, and we give all the resources, both verbally and written, to those folks so that okay. they know who they can reach out to. We get a chance to introduce ourselves. We introduce some of our psych services folks, our chaplains, and things like that so they can see the faces and, and have the names behind that. Um, and then a great thing that we're in our second year of doing it now is the Family Academy. And so we branched out from that family night. And we started a family academy, and, and then we put together a six-session family academy that happens where, again, it's whoever their support system is that they can invite in. And we balance it with a, a little bit of education and a little bit of uh, fun uh, on, a, on a night where it's usually about a two-hour class. Okay. And we start off just trying to educate them about the department, how it works, how it's made up, what we do how their person is being trained and that type of stuff, just to give them a little bit of sense of what goes on so they can ask the right questions and have conversations with their loved one when they come home. They feel part part of the family. Um, and we talk to them about critical incident response and having plans for if they're involved in a critical incident. We talk to them about uh, healthy relationships and, and how to build those and, and maintain those. So it's an education for the families um, in support of the officers and vice versa. And that has been unbelievable the response to that has been unbelievable um and there's a couple of stories that come out that are that are really interesting um, but they've built relationships amongst their classmates and their families and we're seeing this this family this overall idea of family within the department we always say we're a family and things like that right. um but we're seeing at the lower levels or the more recent classes that have come through with doing some of these things we're actually building that family atmosphere at a, at a, a beginner level and I can't imagine what it's going to look like five, seven years from now when we have multiple classes that have gone through and have those relationships and, and that support system. So, um, yeah. So you're having success outcomes. We are. We are definitely. And, you know, one of the one of the biggest complaints from families that we got was one that they felt like they weren't getting information. Right. Um, I've joked for years about trying to pin notes on officers to send them home like <laughs> elementary school kids. Right. Right. To because Look in the they, backpack. Yes. Mm-hmm. They just don't take information home to their families. So we were trying to do all these great events, but the, the information is not being passed on. But I would say more importantly, communication. And communication is something everyone struggles with. It's not an anomaly with law enforcement. Um, Unfortunately, with law enforcement, uh, it's very difficult to go home and share your day um, with somebody. If you feel like you are going to either overwhelm them, concern them, um, and and I've been telling them for a while, your families are stronger than you give them credit for. Right. They and really they want to are. feel invested in your lives, too, and you're not giving them the opportunity. Absolutely. So now we're providing education both on a officer level but also on a family level about, uh, you know, having rules of engagement in communication at home. Of course. Because just like uh, we want them to communicate, we also don't want them to overshare to the point where they're going to be stressing out their family members or creating trauma in them. Right. So – Having those rules of engagement and talking to your family member ahead of time about what those are going to be help give you confidence that if you talk at home, um, you, the conversations are, you know, they, they have these rules behind them. They're going to raise the red flag whenever you've hit that line and they don't want you to go any further telling right. a story. Um, and, and so encouraging them to do that because families generally are the best support system that our cops have. Of course. They're more vulnerable with their significant others than they are their their fellow officers. And so giving them those skills, but also giving warning signs to families so that they feel comfortable. And I think that we are seeing strides there. Um, we've even started educating them on age-appropriate conversations to have with their kids about okay. what you do, That's um, how you, why you do it. 
And um, we're seeing a lot of success with that even. So, um, you know, we I've always said that, you know, healthy cops make healthy decisions. Sure. That starts at home and, and relieving as much stress as possible, whether that's around finances or communication or job stress, giving them the skills to deal with it so that whenever they are at work, they are engaged and they're making good decisions. Well, it sounds like you all have taken this really broad, high-level approach at engaging your your force at every sort of level, from their families to their kids to themselves within the agency. I think that is a fantastic idea. I applaud you all for the work that you're doing. So one question that comes up a lot, because wellness and well-being are the two words that are kind of used interchangeably in ag- agencies – um, you know, I think defining wellness has been a challenge, at least for me, about what does it actually mean. How do you guys define wellness in the work you're doing at Aurora PD? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, we, we sort of have this approach where we are trying to come up with programs, you know, resiliency programs from hire to retire. Okay. Um, I, th- I think the challenge is, is that wellness for people at different stages in their career mean different things. Sure. So we try to focus on physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual health. Um, Wellness is all of those things, you know, even relational. So I don't think that you can necessarily put a label on it, but you do have to have all of those available programs so that when somebody is lacking in one area, they have the resources to bolster that up because wellness is different for every person. Well, and it's certainly whole health. It's not just one or the other. The thing that I've heard a lot, which was not surprising in doing this, is so much of the mental health work that's happening in these agencies, and I don't know about for yours, probably so, um, a lot of it's coming through physical health. You know, somebody's injured or has an accident. Are you seeing that, a workers' comp claim? Are, are you seeing that being an Entree point for um, mental health. Yeah, it's interesting. We, you would think that when an officer is facing disciplinary issue or they're involved in a critical incident and things like that, obviously there's a lot of stress and anxiety and things like that. And those are like, okay, they they may need some assistance here. Sure. I think what one of the aha moments was when we were talking to some of these officers that had long term injuries. Um, whether it was off the job or on the job, um, or that we're going to be out of work or in a limited duty assignment because of that injury, how much that affected them mentally to not be able to come to work every day in a full capacity and be out there with their peers and be out there doing their job and how much that took away from their identity, um, good, bad, or indifferent. But um, yeah, it really, really affected them quite a bit. And so we found that we... We started checking up on those people just as much as we were checking up on those that had been involved in a critical incident or had something else going on major in their life. Um, it's definitely one of those things that we're working on improving on. And, and one of the programs that we're working, we've been working on for the last two years now with the, the help of some other people in the metro area is, is, is bringing in a, a in-house physical therapy clinic. Um, ours will open up in the summer of 2020. The renovations are going on right now where we'll, we'll hire a full-time physical therapist to be in-house. And, and, you know, I was looking at your, your previous, um, speakers or uh, podcast uh, folks and saw Emily Locke on there and Emily from Denver. She's been hugely supportive, um, of us trying to get our program off the ground. And, And I've spent the last two years working with her off and on to basically, you know, get their data, their information at the same time, um, have her come in and talk to our risk management people, how important this program is. And and that's one of the things she expressed early on was 
how much the physical ailment and, and folks being um, in that safe environment with a physical therapist inside the department where they opened up about other things that they were going through. And that's a great stepping stone for, for other things like peer support and our professional psych services and things like that. So we think it's hugely important, so important that we're going to do it ourselves. Well, and having others that are ahead on the path, and Emily does phenomenal work. I yeah. mean, South Metro is doing great work in the yes. same capacity. Yes. Um, I think being able to have those guideposts to check in and say, well, we've done this and it's been successful, I, I, I think it makes perfect sense that you're doing it. So kudos. Yeah. I, I You know, there's, there's so many good <clears throat> programs around the metro area. Um, and we certainly didn't, you know, invent everything here. There's some great things that we've done here that we've shared with others and vice versa. And I think that's what's what's awesome about this, this stigma being removed from first responders and needing assistance. It's grown so much that, you know, other departments are reaching out to other departments with their right. programs. And it's like, hey, we're seeing this. What do you guys have for that? Do you have a resource for that? What are you using? And vice versa. And getting together and having those conversations about what's going on and sharing those resources and sharing the training um, so that we make sure that we're not just taking care of our department, that we're taking care of everybody else. Well, and I think the thing that I've recognized in doing this work is that collaboration is really pervasive and people are doing it. You know, as I look at what the the 2.0 of Everyday Brave is and the continued iterations of this, you know, I never developed this to just be a Denver Metro initiative. It started here, and I think it's a great test market because there's so much gold standard work happening here. But the fact of the matter is, is what we've talked about today, I would imagine it's applicable in any agency anywhere in the world, you know, or especially in the United States. You know, money stress is not something that is limited to Aurora Police Department. You know, it could be applicable in in any other city in the nation. Um, it's fortunate you all have resources and have, have had the, the insight to take those steps and develop the initiatives. Is there anything I, – I love what we've talked about today and we could continue to go on, but is there anything – that we've not talked about that you think that people should know about what you guys are doing or just in general um, related to responder wellness? You stump us here. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, we've covered a lot and, yeah. and you all are doing amazing work. Yeah. I, I, I think that it's just important to stress that the, the problems that we're seeing at Aurora Police Department, like you said, are not unique to first responders. Right. And what we're finding is that you don't have to have uh, tons of money to put forward toward a program. You don't have to have tons of time. Because I, I know that smaller agencies look at Aurora because we are the second largest agency in the state. And they're like, well, that's great for them. They have plenty they, of money. They have the money and they have the time and the resources. But you can start at a small level with nothing. Um most of ours is just a lot of hard work. We didn't have a budget for the first year and a half, two years that we did this. We barely have one now. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, honestly, it's just caring. It's just caring about one another. It's just somebody stepping up to take the initiative to say, we have not been doing this right for a long time. And we are sending guys into retirement that are ill-prepared and that are not in a good place to right. spend their their twilight years. They've spent 30-plus years serving their community, giving somebody else everything. And then we send them off with no tools, resources, and very little mental health care. And that's a shame. It shouldn't be the case. And and all it takes really is just somebody caring right. in, in each department. And and you don't need a whole lot of time. You don't need a whole lot of money. Um, you can start at a very easy, low level. And we've been helping smaller agencies across the state that have reached out to us do that. We'll give them a place to start. And we're more than willing to do that because 
we are um, united in in that in that overall fight for responder wellness um, because we need that. Well, and I'm going to do a brag here since you didn't on yourself. I mean, one thing that I think it takes above time and and money is it takes people that have passion like you all that are committed to doing the work. You know, let's be frank. You all have made the progress you've made because you all are committed to doing it. And the, apart- the, the department has embraced it, and that's continued to grow. Um, so I do think the starting point is identifying who are the people that are passionate about carrying the torch for the work. Absolutely. I think, I think that's key. I mean, we, just, we talked about peer support earlier, getting the right people in the right places. And that's, that's every level. That's a peer support. That's whoever's running your wellness program if you have full-time people. And you strong-arming her into doing it. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about – you know, we don't have a whole a large budget other than our psych services contract. We don't have a large budget right. to do this. It is a sweat equity that Emily has put in here uh, with some other folks that have built these programs from the ground level. Um, the other part of that is we have a very supportive administration. And obviously, we wouldn't be in existence today if it wasn't for Chief Metz creating this unit and then empowering us to do what we do um, and trusting us to do what we do. And, you know, I think that's something that back to the stigma of, uh, you know, first responders and things like that is is changing the culture and administration across the country about making these making this a priority and making this a need and necessity that you build programs like this in house and support those folks doing it. Um, like I said, we're very fortunate to have this. We've heard some horror stories across the country of 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 uh, other administrations that aren't supportive of it, and, and it's how challenging it is than to even get a peer support program started or right. to have a psych services contract. So we're very fortunate in that that way. Um, and we encourage other people that are having those struggles to to reach out to our administration to have those conversations, to figure out how they can maybe help, you know, those other agencies understand that. So I think it's going to require, you know, some, some large personalities um, across the country, some chiefs in, in very powerful positions to be at these – at these larger scale events and talk about the importance of it and really at their level start spreading the word so that it becomes a priority in every agency. Well, and I think that you you underscore that completely. I mean, it's a culture of support. <laughs> I mean, it starts from the top down, really. I don't normally think of things like that. I mean, you have grassroots initiatives that you've done, but it started with the support from the top. Yes. Um, so I admire that. You guys keep shining the bright light that you are. Um, thank you so much for being here today. Um, I just appreciate you. Thank you for having us. Appreciate it. We are glad you shared your time with us today. Thank you. If you or someone you know is struggling, we are here to help. You are not alone. The Connection Project has resources that can support you. I encourage you to check out the Everyday Brave digital resource list, which can be found on our website, www.realpeoplerealife.org. Until next time, thanks for listening.